and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and for this one, all of the stars, at least numerically, seem to have aligned. It's podcast 99, but what makes it even stranger is it's going live on September the 9th, or 9-9. I didn't go so far as having nine guests on the show, that might have made it 99 minutes long, and it is a bit shorter than usual again, just like last week, because we had a couple of technical gremlins again when it came to the interview process. Of course, because of my love of and background in music, 99 makes me think of 99 Red Balloons, but there are other famous 99s and 9s, including 99 Miles from LA, which has been covered by a lot of people, 99 by Toto, and then when we get to the 9s, there's George Harrison's Cloud 9, there's Cloud Number 9 by Brian Adams, Number 9 Dream by John Lennon, and Revolution Number 9 by The Beatles. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and that last piece of music I think has given my son a bit of a complex about the number nine, because whenever he says nine, he just knows I'm going to reply by saying number nine many, many times. But it works both ways, because whenever I say the word stick, he will repeat the stick song from the kids' show Hey Doggy, which once you've heard it, you will never hear the word stick again without singing the song in your head. Go ahead and check it out, I dare you. It's only got seven and a half million views. The other 99 I can think of does have a dairy connotation in that it's an ice cream, or kind of an ice cream, because it's an ice cream cone with a flake in it. And for those not from the UK, a flake is a chocolate bar, which is a flaky chocolate stick made by Cadbury's. There are lots of theories as to why it's called a 99, from ice cream shop street numbers to cricket scores to the Italian King's Guard. If I keep going like this, I'm probably going to hit the 99-minute mark on my own, so I'll let you know who's on the show today. This week's Dairy Dialogue podcast features interviews with Lewis Barton, president of Barton Group LLC, and Gerrit Tolborg, CEO of Chromologics in Denmark. And of course, we also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Of course, before we get to this week's guests, we should take a quick look at the news from the dairy industry that you may have missed over the last seven days, or maybe you just need a bit of a recap. And before I do that, if you live in North America, I hope you had a good long Labor Day weekend. So, here's the news. Quite a lot of countries covered this week, and we kicked off with the EBRD and EU supporting the cheese company Landor in Morocco and Tunisia. Nature One Dairy is to use YPB Connect in its Southeast Asia expansion, and in the US the Dairy Strong Conference is going virtual this year. Speaking of events, I did get a couple of invites to events this week that are actually going ahead. One was in Moscow later this month, and the other is for the CFIA in Rennes in France, a place that I've been to before, and it was a very good event, and it seems like it's expanded this year as well. So it's good that there are events taking place again, and hopefully they all take place safely and without incident, and that there are more of them in the coming months. Okay, back to the news and back to the US, where the American Dairy Coalition has applauded the introduction of the Give Milk Act. Christian Hansen has launched a new culture for pizza cheese to reduce browning, 
And here's a long one. Eurofins Technologies has been awarded the world's first AOAC performance-tested methods status for a screening method to detect aflatoxin M1 in milk. I need a breather after that one. Australia and New Zealand company Maxim Foods published its global dairy commodity update for September. DuPont has introduced some cultures for the fermented dairy industry in China. And Metla Toledo introduced some new label inspection options. Orla published its most recent financials and the company saw strong growth in spite of the coronavirus pandemic effect in Q2. Novozymes is streamlining its organization and in Africa, Lato Milk has expanded into new African markets, namely Malawi, South Sudan and Ethiopia. Another few places I wouldn't mind visiting to do some articles. Maybe someday. The German retailer Penny has dropped plastic yogurt lids. That's those lids that go over the top of the foil lid and then you use them to keep the product from spoiling in the fridge. Well, they now sell reusable ones at two for a euro. Well, two for 99 euro cents, I guess. And that's a great idea for sustainability. I often wondered about that myself, but then I'm always too late when it comes to inventions. Anyway, those are just some of the stories. There are plenty more that you can read on dairyreporter.com. And now we move on to this week's guests. About time, you say. First this week, we talked to Lewis Barton, president of Barton Group, which has developed some new packaging solutions for, among other things, dairy, for things like drinking yogurts, that gets rid of things like the additional straws that you need. Well, this isn't a visual podcast, but you can actually go to the company's website, which is HTTPS, and then colon and the double slash, squeezystraw.com. So if you go to squeezystraw.com, and I'll spell that for you in both versions of English, that's S-Q-U-E-E-Z-Y, and then straw.com. Or if you're in North America, then it will be S-Q-U-E-E-Z-Y, straw.com. So squeezystraw.com with a Z or a Z. And you can follow along with the conversation we had because he mentions some of the products and you can just click on the tabs and see the technology as we speak. Sorry to make you do all the work here. Anyway, let's get to the interview and hear from Lewis about the company. Okay, the company is me. My background, it, again, if you go to the website, you'll, get, you'll see all of this. I want to tell you about it, but it's going to make it easy for you. I've been in the flexible packaging business for my entire career, uh, over 40 years. I owned a company called Sigma Quality Foods for about 25 years, where I manufactured individual packets, uh, what you call sachets on that side of the pond, of ketchup and grape jelly and pancake syrup. For, I was a regional supplier. That company was in New York, or in the New York area, and I supplied the McDonald's and Burger King and Hardee's and White Castle and companies like that. And I sold that company because of my relationship with McDonald's. They asked me to continue working for them as a, as a consultant on packaging innovation, and that was the second part of my career, which was about 20 years where I uh, developed a great deal of innovation for McDonald's. I actually got an award from them for delivering innovation to the system. And one of the projects I worked on for McDonald's had to do with a peristaltic pump application where which required a pouch and attached to the pouch was a piece of flexible tubing to go through the peristaltic pump. So um, 
I kept running into a problem in terms of the escalating cost because of the tubing. Tubing was outrageous. <laughs> Uh, and so I thought very carefully about that, and I came up with the original idea. If you go to the website and you click on applications, you go down to the end of that and look at bag and box. So that's when I developed the first idea. The first iteration of this was to build a pouch with its own integral tube extension, an outboard tube extension that replaced having to get a separate piece of flexible tubing and a connector and a fitment. And uh, that was a, that. It was an idea for a parasolic pump application. Unfortunately, that project did not come to fruition. And so I went on to uh, uh, use that that concept and made and with additional patent applications. If you go back to the home page, I developed the uh, the innovation for the squeezy straw, which is the same idea of the integral uh, tube extension, but in this case using an asymmetrical uh, thermal forming application, we come up with a flat bottom and, a, and a, an efficient volumetric pocket. So making a stand-up pouch without using a gusset. So this stand-up pouch using the thermal forming becomes an extremely low-cost option to other dispensing pouches. The way we do this is by using thermal forming machines. In particular, we've been working with Multivac and with a die cutting, it escalates the cost because of the tooling. So the idea of the Squeezy Easy was an idea of still using that same thermal forming technology to create the stable bottom, but by putting an angle on the package, we can create a built-in dispensing tip on that upper corner, and um, we eliminate the need for the outboard extension. This reduces the cost of the pouch significantly because we don't have the film that's used for the pouch um, board extension, and it dramatically decreases the price of the machinery because we don't need die cutting. I think there's an application for both with and without the outboard dispensing. Uh, this, I think, is a super low-cost option, so it's, it's very attractive. In terms of dairy applications, I think there are many of them. Some of them are particularly on the squeezy straw. For example, um, we're working right now with a, with a large dairy that's looking to replace its eight ounce carton with our pack that will be for the school lunch program, school lunch milk program in the U.S. Uh, many, many, many millions of packages. And the advantages we have are not only lower costs, but in, an interesting thing that was brought up to me is that uh, disposal. When the kids finish that milk in the school cafeteria and they throw the carton away, it takes up as much room empty as it did filled in the trash can, whereas ours will collapse into nothing. In terms of your audience, I see applications for dairy products such as uh, yogurt, cottage cheese, uh, milk. Uh, many of them are in the business of, of uh, juice and puddings. There are tremendous applications in the dairy industry for all of these things. And what we have is, is the ability to offer the variety of the squeezy without the outboard extension or the squeezy straw with the outboard extension. You mentioned about it being a lot smaller than the like the drink boxes that you can get when it's been used and that it's cheaper. What about the sustainability? Is it recyclable? That, that's it. You know what? We, we're not in the film business. Uh, I've spoken with some film suppliers. 
And the answer is it's possible to be recyclable depending upon the customer's, the customer's specifications. So that question has to be answered between the customer and the film supplier. We're there to work with everybody. We, we have to coordinate this to make sure that the film is right for us. But the specifics of the film is, gonna, is going to be between the customer and the film supplier. Now, another interesting answer to your question, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but recently Eastman announced a breakthrough in recycling technology to be able to recycle mixed polymers. Up until now, recyclability has been strictly uh, the same polymer. You know, you, you recycle PE with PE, PET with PET. But Eastman's announced a uh, uh, technology that will be able to recycle PE with PET, et cetera. But we're looking forward to learning more about that because that would essentially make any film that's used in our project uh, recyclable. Is it already being used in any products yet? We've just sort of relaunched the project because of some research and development we've done. So we've just, we've just relaunched it. We're having reasonably good response. As I said to you, we're, we're working diligently with one big dairy and got some other inquiries that we're looking at. So we don't have it. We have no commercial application yet. We're looking for customers to work with. And what would the advantages be for potential customers over the existing technology? I mean, you've kind of mentioned a few things already, but why would they benefit from this? Okay, well, uh, regarding stand-up pouches with dispensing features, the one that's most common is the one with the fitment and the cap on it. The pouch with the fitment and the cap on it requires the installation of that dissimilar product, that fitment, and then the installation of the cap on top of that. That drives the cost up of the pouch exponentially. In addition to that, it also restricts the product because whatever product you put in there has to be able to get through that small opening in that fitment. So let's take, for example, yogurt. Uh, yogurt will work in mine and it will work in, in that one with the fitment. But if you want to put inclusions in the yogurt, you want to put pieces of fruit or granola or something like that, you've got a problem with the fitment because you can't get it through that small opening. With us, you can make the opening any size you want. So we have a big advantage there. Number two, the cost, of course, is a major advantage. Number three, with the um, use of the uh, thermal forming machines, we have a high volume production capacity. It's lightweight, durable. This is not intended to be reusable. So it's tamper evident. You open the package, you can't do anything with it. So I think that's a very important today's day and age, I think that's a very important feature. It's freeze and thaw options with regard to the film. Uh, we believe it's microwavable in certain applications. We're studying that very carefully. But we're looking, for example, at uh, soup. Soup in a package like this, you put it in the microwave, heat it up, put one of those uh, hot coffee cup collars around it, and you've got a soup on, on the go. And it can be made in any size and shape. It's not restricted by the patents to a size and shape. I showed you the original one. That was a three-gallon one. Uh, the prototypes we have of the squeezy straw, we don't have prototypes of the squeezy easy, but the squeezy straw prototypes are eight-ounce. They were particularly made to go up against the uh, Tetra Pak's eight-ounce milk package. Uh, we've designed them four ounces, five ounces, and in every case, they're very, very inexpensive. So my business proposition is to license the patents. 
We're not in the business of making the pouches. We want to license the patents to dairies, for example, put them together with the machinery people so they buy the machines, the film people buy the film, and they'll have a turnkey operation to go into business, and the ROI will be very, very attractive. But we have only U.S. patents. Would it be easy to print on? Print on the front panel. Yeah, the panel on the front uh, it remains flat, and that's just a, that's a, a typical conventional printing operation. The back panel gets thermoformed. It gets distorted. So printing on the back panel is more of a challenge. It requires a process known as distortion printing, which takes into consideration the ultimate distortion. When you print it, you can't read it. <laughs> but when you thermoform it, it comes into focus. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not inexpensive. Uh, it would be used on the back only if it was necessary. The objective was to put, put all of the copy, mandatory copy and, and uh, principal display panel copy on the front panel. And as far as companies producing these, would it be cost effective in terms of like the equipment that they're going to need in order to be able to produce these? Absolutely, because the uh, cost of the individual packet is so much less than whatever they would use competitively. You know, if they're using the pouch with the uh, fitment and the cap on it, they're probably going to save two cents a piece. A machine can do maybe 50 million a year. So uh, saving two cents a piece on 50 million, let's see, five million, that's about a million dollars a year in savings. The high volume machine, the biggest, most expensive machine to do this would be about a million dollars. So there's a business case that could be made under certain conditions that the ROI is one year. So you mentioned the next step is just to try to get this licensed? Yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to attract potential customers, and our customers certainly are dairies, and they're also large consumer packaged goods companies like ConAgra and P&G and Kraft Heinz and Campbell Soup, people like that. We have an ad campaign breaking on LinkedIn a week from Monday, the 14th, that targets those kinds of customers. The first is going to be uh, featuring yogurt. The second one's going to be featuring the microwavable soup. And you, you have quite a f on your website, you have quite a few products already listed on there. Are you still developing more or are you going to kind of stick with what you got for now? People come to me and say, what about this? What about that? For example, if you look at the Squeezy Max Packs, we have one, one customer that came to us with an interesting project, the nuts. And it's perfect for the nut business. This is a package where you can actually put a zipper on it in the production process, put a zipper across the top. Back it with four or five ounces of nuts and open it and we close it. So we get a lot of ideas from people who call us. And I, I had three or four people talk to us about kids' things. And that's why, I mean, I'm, I have grandchildren now, so I'm out of that. But um, they talk about how attractive this is for kids compared to what they're using now. You know, I want to point out to you, a lot of dairies are in the juice business as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. Take a look at that tab that says no tip, squeezy tip. Okay, the thought here was hospital uh, tray tables and products like orange juice, which is currently typically supplied in cups with peel-off lids. And with people in hospitals, you've got, always got the problem of, of them tipping it over and spilling it. So here we have very low profile. It's virtually tip-proof. <laughs> and you, you pick it up and you squeeze it out and take it out of the, the extension. I think that's a very good opportunity 
for dairies who are in the uh, business of supplying health care with things like uh, orange juice. As I told you, I have only U.S. patents. I do get a lot of inquiries from overseas right now. I'm going back and forth with a very, very large Japanese company. I can't collect royalties, but I'll certainly, I mean, to a certain limit, I'll certainly help people overseas if they want to use the technology because any commercial success anywhere in the world will reflect positively on the U.S. market. Next, it's to Chromologics. The Danish company, which is a spin-off from the Technical University of Denmark, is developing innovative natural food colorants. And it has raised 1.9 million euros, or 2.2 million dollars roughly, in seed financing. To tell us what's so new about what the company is doing is Dr. Gerrit Tolborg, CEO of the company. Yeah, so Chromologics, um, we are a spin-out from the Technical University of Denmark. And uh, the core technology that we're using in Chromologics today was actually developed by myself doing my PhD at DTO Bioengineering. So back then, we discovered a novel class of fungal pigments and could, together with the, with the university, identify an, an IP opportunity. And since we already knew that there was a strong industrial need for novel natural food colorants, we took that as a starting point to build our business case. And then very early on, we also received the proof of concept grant from the university to pursue our idea further. And that's how the entire development of Chromologic started. We've been officially first founded in 2017, but we already started working in 2016 with the idea. Is it just food coloring that you work with? Well, we've been pivoting back and forth, and we also have some other ideas to extend the application, but right now we feel that in food colorants it's the biggest pain for us to get into, and we have the, the, the best value proposition for, from our product. On the long term, we're also thinking about cosmetic ingredients because there's also kind of a move towards more sustainable solutions. We're also on discussions with some detergent companies, and there are also startups that are using kind of similar approaches like we're having for the textile industry, because there's also a big movement there to get that industry segment more cleaner from like the dyeing perspective. So, I mean, there's different applications beyond foods, but right now we feel that food is the first market segment we want to get into. Obviously, red is the color that you're concentrating on in terms of that being the flagship color. Are there other colors that you're working on as well? So the red is the flagship product, and that's also the one that we kind of, that's the, the, the most developed. Our fungus, the fungal host we're using, naturally also produces orange and yellow. And on the long term, we also definitely want to tap into that possibility. We have already proof of concept orange on very small lab scale, but that's something that, that we kind of pursue on the sideline where we advance. Our main focus right now is the advancement of the red color and chroma red and bring that to market. And without giving any trade secrets away, how, how do you produce the coloring? So for the production of we're using a wild-type filamentous fungus and that we cultivate in the bioreactor. That's basically like making beer, but not making alcohol, but we're making the color. So we developed a proprietary fermentation protocol, and when you follow that, the fungus produces the red colorant and excretes that actually into the media. So then all we have to do is filter the fungus away, and then there's some simple downstream processing steps. We dry the material, and then we have some very nice red powder. 
But it's really important to say it, and I would like to stress that as well, that it's, like, it's no genetic engineering involved, so it's, a, it's not a GMO fungus. It's all 100% natural. And is this something that once you, you have this commercially available, is it something that you'll be able to scale up easily for, for, for large-scale production? Definitely, and that's also one of the, the big advantages of our technology if you compare that to traditional solutions. So we already in a, scaled our production to pre-pilot size, which is around 50 liters, and within the next 18 months, we want to scale it to pre-industrial size, which is 1,000 liters. But, I mean, once we kind of have the production up and running, it can easily be produced in like 100,000 liter fermentos. That's pretty standard for, for this kind of type of fermentation. So it's definitely scalable, and that also makes this solution so attractive. There are already lots of companies out there producing food colorants. When it comes to marketing your particular product, what advantages does it have over existing products on the market? So, I mean, today food colors, they can either be natural or synthetic, right? And with our ChromoWet, we want to challenge traditional wet natural colorants in the first place. And the ones that are used today, they have um, different drawbacks. And one major drawback is their performance. And not all of the wet colorants can live up to the industrial standards, which affects the shelf life of the product and also their quality. And that's a big problem. For example, betanine from beetroot is not very temperature-stable, and anthocyanins have some challenges with pHs. And the most stable colorant that is available for foods today, carmine, that is extracted from insects and is not considered vegan and has a very poor consumer reputation. So there's this one discussion about the performance where we have a really strong advantage because our colorant is very temperature-stable, it is very pH-stable. On top of that, we believe that our solution is more sustainable because these traditional ones I just mentioned, they're all extracted from high-value raw materials like berries, tomatoes, and beetroot. Their purpose would be to feed people, and also these they require a lot of farming space. And since our colorant is effectively produced in the lab, uh, with very minimal farming requirements, and it's also independent from season variation, we believe that we can offer a more sustainable solution that also guarantees a stable supply chain. Often when you think of things like using tomatoes, people think, oh yeah, it's extremely sustainable in terms of the fact that it's from a natural source, but as you mentioned, it, you have to grow a lot of tomatoes to get the food colouring out of it, and it's taking away from the food chain. Yes, I mean, you need like a lot. For example, beetroot, if you want to make one kilogram of betanine, you need like 2,500 kilograms of beetroot, right? And you need to farm them on like one square kilometer. They could be used for growing crops that can actually feed people. And we think that's a huge challenge, especially for the future with like the world population growing and all the climate challenges we're facing. And so what kind of products would benefit from this particular food coloring that you're developing? In the first step, it will be put to the market as a food colorant. And here our go-to markets are all food products with low water content. And we have conducted several application studies with industrial partners. And those studies have shown great performance of uh, ChromoWet in meat and meat replacement products and dairy, bakery products and confectionery. And here I think our beachhead market will be the, the meat replacement category because our product is, is vegan and it's very temperature stable. And right now, there's not really a natural colorant available on the market that is both because betanine has these temperature challenges and carmine, the competitor, which is very temperature stable, is not considered vegan. So there's a kind of a gap 
that we would like to fill in with our colorants. And how will companies that utilize this ingredient in their own products, how will they how will they label that? How will it appear on a label? I mean, it will have an e-number in Europe. So that is unavoidable because it's a completely novel colorant and it's also just a colorant. So we will have to get it approved as a food additive colorant. But we don't believe that this is the challenge because the final products that we're targeting will be processed foods anyway, where this clean label trend, of course, is also arising, but not as strong as, for example, in beverages. It's important to have transparency, and we would rather like to state what it is than try to hide anything and try to become something else that we're not really. And you mentioned the fact that you don't have to grow fields and fields of fruit or vegetables in order to be able to create this red colorant. How cost-effective will it be for companies to utilize? And that's, of course, also one of our value propositions, that we are very cost-competitive. And that is thanks to our very effective process, but also thanks to like our, the scalability of our process. So um, that's also definitely something we, we target. And I mean, in that regard, we still have a little bit way ahead of us because we're not at our targeted yields yet, but we're very confident that we'll get there um, once the product is ready to be put on the market. What came out in terms of the press release was the fact that you just got some more funding. What's the relevance of that and the significance of some more funding coming into the company? Uh, we just had a first closing of our Series C investment, and that, of course, allows us to reach some very important value inflection points. And one thing is that we will keep improving our process and our strain to ensure the highest possible yield, which kind of feeds back into the cost competitiveness of our product. And then we will have a major focus on the regulatory approval process, since chromoread is a completely novel molecule and has never been consumed before. It needs to be approved for human consumption by the EFSA for Europe consumption and uh, by the FDA for, for usage in the U.S. And then lastly, we would also like to scale our process to pre-industrial size to demonstrate the scalability of the process, but also to generate enough testing material for some uh, pilot studies and food with our product. Is this something that you plan on selling globally? I think we would like to start with, with Europe and the FDA, but then I think we'll definitely unfold also globally and see where is there like an interest for our product, right? Because it really depends on the individual market. But the Middle Eastern market could also be really interesting because they have a lot of halal requirements, which is also not fulfilled by Carmine. So that could be interesting. So we definitely have also global ambitions once we are on the market. How many people do you have working on the project? I mean, currently we're still, we just started, right? So we're still only three people, but we're like expanding the team now to kind of yeah, have some more manpower in-house. Maybe I could just like to add that even though we, we need to get regulatory approval for our compounds, we did a lot of pre-studies already and tested um, Comoret for genotoxicity and cytotoxicity and all of that. So we have done a lot of pre-work and now it's just about getting the official documents for the filing. Pretty interesting stuff there. In fact, two really cutting-edge technology interviews today. And now we find out how the global dairy markets are doing as we head over to Dublin for a chat with Charlie Highland from StoneX. Hi, Jim. So another reasonably stable week in the European dairy markets uh, this week. A couple of things have been have been happening, I guess. Um, one, of the, from a production perspective, we're, we're starting to see some improvement in the weather conditions across much of Europe, where we've 
basically seeing cooler periods now coming on the back of uh, reasonably warm periods during August. And that's starting to, you know, improve the forecast for particularly pasture conditions and grass growth uh, towards the uh, autumn here. And, you know, the knock on effect of that is the expected uh, improvement in, in milk collections. So the, the mood is slightly more optimistic on that side. Uh, over the last week or so, and uh, that's starting to pass through a little bit to the markets here, where we're seeing a little bit more selling interest out there. Um, on on average, markets are still quiet. There's still a bit of a, a standoff between buyers and sellers, but there is a little bit more pressure, and prices have been moving slightly lower over the last week. The quotations, however, the the physical spot market quotations have been really very flat for the week and um, they're just released this morning here with slight increases of 0.2% on, on butter and 0.2% on skim milk powder. Now the futures themselves are, are doing the opposite, they're moving slightly lower but again within reasonably tight ranges. Um, from a world market perspective again there is still reasonably good signs for milk collection um, New Zealand season is starting pretty well. The, the U.S. season is, is is improving as well due to the higher prices over there that we've seen uh, as a result of some of the support programs. So, so on average, the production side looks quite good. Um, the demand side is where there's a lot of question marks out there right now. Certainly, there's still a lot of concerns around the knock-on effect of, of COVID and as a result, the knock-on effect on the global economic uh, conditions which usually has a direct impact on demand for dairy commodities. And so far, that demand has been holding up reasonably well. But there is a lot of analysts and forecasters who are expecting that to start impacting the market over the coming weeks and months. So we need to keep an eye on that. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next time. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that just about does it for another week. I do have interviews lined up for the next podcast, but who knows what will happen. We'll just have to wait and see. One thing's for certain, a wet weekend beckons here in Scotland now that summer officially seems to be a distant memory, just like going to events. I think there are probably a few people out there like me itching to get travelling again, although I certainly don't want to do that if it puts my life or somebody else's at risk. So it's time to sign off. I hope you enjoyed this week's shorter episode and that you will join us again next time. So until then, take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.